It's entirely fitting in a news podcast discussion that we regularly talk about the biggest corruption scandal in the history of Ohio, and we certainly have a lot to talk about with that scandal today. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston, each of whom will get a bite at the HB6 Apple. But first, another story. Do we have a serious shortage in the kind of workers we need down near Columbus to get the Intel microchip plant? Lisa, this is a staggering number. Wow. Yeah, they're saying that this $20 billion Intel plant near Columbus will need 7,000 construction workers over the life of the of the construction period. They're going to be building two fabs, which is what they call their factories, and they want to open them by 2025. They don't need these workers all at once, but they just will need them, like I said, over the life they need to clear these hundreds of acres of rural land. You know, they need to build road and other infrastructure. But Michael Engbert with the Ohio Laborers International Union of North America is saying that they're getting calls from all over the country to want to transfer to Columbus to get some of these lucrative construction jobs. And Intel did choose Ohio because of its robust workforce, but is it enough? They think that they'll get those workers, but it will be challenging. So in Ohio, there's right now about 45,000 construction workers. That increased by almost 2,000 since May of last year. But right now, everybody's hiring. I mean, right next door to Intel, there's going to be a, a a factory going in that's going to supply parts to Intel. There's also a couple of Google and Amazon uh, projects that are going up. And they're also worried that they'll have to pull construction workers off of home construction, which would create a housing shortage risk right when they need housing very much. Well, Laura and Layla, what do you think about the idea? <laughs> You've just been through kind of hell dealing with uh, construction work in your houses. Can you imagine how hard it would be if most of the workers being drawn to these lucrative jobs a couple hours away? I mean, what do you mean through? Like I am still <laughs> in the thick of it and I don't know how anybody is going to find enough crew to do this because there's tons of projects all over the place. Yeah, I, I just I know that people have had a hard time finding contractors, but if I was a contractor, you got to figure you're going to get a premium for this because they're in a desperate need and the law is supply and demand. I, I think it's going to be even more difficult to get work done for the next year or two with yeah. the needs they have down there. Because they're saying, you know, the pay for with overtime for skilled tradesmen could reach one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year at these Intel jobs. Wow. Okay, that's going to change the the whole construction industry in Ohio, Northeast Ohio, and Central Ohio. And you are listening to Today in Ohio. We have multiple developments in Ohio's biggest ever statehouse corruption case. First, Cleveland businessman Tony George appears to have had a much closer relationship to First Energy than anyone knew. What does a new set of public records show about how close he was to the corporation officials and Larry Householder, the former Ohio House Speaker, indicted in the massive First Energy bribery case. Layla, this was an eye-opener. 
Yeah, this this bit of information comes from a, a deposition transcript made public Friday in a state filing by the Office of the Ohio Consumers Council. In it, First Energy's assistant controller said Tony George was so close to Larry Householder and First Energy executives that they actually attended Donald Trump's presidential inauguration together in 2017. So that was a stunner. But George was identified as Individual B during this particular deposition last May as part of First Energy's deferred prosecution agreement with the federal authorities. That agreement says that Individual B was in communication with now-fired First Energy CEO Chuck Jones about an early effort to bail out two Northern Ohio nuclear power plants, as well as this aborted effort by householder to skirt state term limits. And of course, in the deferred prosecution agreement, First Energy has admitted to bribing householder in the bailout scheme. Householder has pleaded not guilty to federal corruption charge. Three co-defendants have pleaded guilty to their roles in the case. But George, so far, you know, he hasn't been accused of any wrongdoing. But The deferred prosecution agreement quotes text messages between Jones and George that make it seem pretty clear that they're talking about saving the power plants and doing favors for householder, including supporting that proposed constitutional amendment that, if passed, would have allowed householder to stay in in the Ohio House through 2036, despite the eight-year term limits for state lawmakers in Ohio. So these revelations are on on the heels of of a PUCO audit released last year that outlined a a long-time financial relationship between George and First Energy. And that audit showed First Energy gave $10.7 million in payments to a dozen entities that were linked to George. And while none of that implicated George in any way, it certainly connected him to this company that's been at the heart of the biggest corruption scandal in Ohio history. And this most recently released deposition certainly shines an even brighter light on that really cozy relationship. So yeah, what what what's striking is is the coziness. He you say he goes to the inauguration, but he traveled with Dowling, the number two guy and householder, to the inauguration and was greeted there by mm. Chuck Jones, the CEO, the, the the dethroned CEO, and the comfort they have with each other in these text messages. This is not stiff. These guys are pals. They're buds. They're they're talking away and. It does make you wonder again about what he was doing with regard to CPP. Remember, he had tried to get contracts with the city that would have given him some footing in the electric industry in the city when he didn't get it. He tried to to destroy the council by reducing the number of seats that blew up in his face and he stopped. But with that relationship with First Energy, you really do wonder what was going on there. Yes, and uh, I, I've been trying to figure out what uh, what's what was Tony George's endgame, if that's the case. Like, where where does he really fit into this puzzle? Do you what's uh, what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I I mean this this was I mean we knew he was making money from First Energy. We knew he had business relationships, but this is friendship. And yeah, of course, he's not talking to us. He often does not. Right. Uh, we reached out to to talk to him, and we didn't even hear from his lawyer. But it's an eye opener on that case. This case just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and we'll be talking about it again in a minute. It's today in Ohio. Next, what does the recent trove of emails in the First Energy Corruption case show about the company's expectations of Sam Randazzo after Governor Mike DeWine overruled those who warned him and named Randazzo his head of the Public Utilities Commission? 
Laura, this is also eye-opening about the relationship between Randazzo and First Energy. Yeah, it just goes so deep. So Randazzo wasn't actually the first choice of First Energy executives to become the chair of the PUCO, but it's crystal clear they had a huge say. And Randazzo basically, whatever First Energy did, Randazzo said, I'll try to deliver that. So First Energy leaders even had dinner with DeWine and Husted when they were running to lobby for his appointment. They appoint, they, you know, they expected this stuff and and he delivered. And it's all from a bunch of texts that were recently released, obviously never meant to be shared with the public. One includes heads photoshopped on Mush, Mount Rushmore that said, HB6, F anybody who ain't us. And that had <laughs> some of the First Energy executives on it, as well as Randazzo as the faces of the presidents. Right. That that. They were joking. They were so yeah. full of themselves. They were joking. You know, our editorial board came out very strongly Sunday and said, Mike DeWine, John Houston, you owe it to Ohio to lay out every step you took in this stinky case. They've never been incriminated as doing anything criminal, but Lord knows they did everything possible to get this done when their predecessors looked at it as a stinky deal and never passed it. And they have tried to duck it. I mean, Houston said last week he's finished talking about it, which we don't believe he's going to be forced to talk about it. They're on the campaign trail. But this is one where it was Mike DeWine's pick. There were people mm-hmm. telling him, don't pick him. Bad news. Mm-hmm. Turns right. out it was major bad news. They were With a whole dossier him. about him, right? I mean, like a whole binder full of information yeah. that they said that they weren't surprised by. But yeah, it's, you're right. I mean, it didn't. This didn't happen under John Kasich. You you wonder what happened if they approached Kasich if he ran him over with his bus. Well, he said no. They tried. <laughs> right. They kept. They came to our editorial board looking for support repeatedly, and it was like not a chance. But then they got all these guys into office, and they rolled out the red carpet. And that that look, I, this is it's what's amazing to me is ten years ago, everybody involved in this would have been run out of town on a rail. But the media is kind of dead in most of the state. And I don't think people realize how big a deal this is. And that's what DeWine and Houston are counting on is ignorance so that it doesn't get held against them. So in December 2018, Chuck Jones, Michael Dowling, who's the head lobbyist for First Energy, met at Randazzo's condo in Columbus. And Randazzo had already been receiving secret payments from First Energy for years. He texted them a payment schedule for him to receive an additional $4.3 million through 2024. I mean, this is all part of it. And then they were texting him, said, don't forget about us or just Hurricane Chuck might show up on your doorstep. And they're they're saying, you know, you made me laugh. You guys are welcome anytime, anywhere I can open the door. And they're paying with taxpayer money. Let, let's just not forget that, that this is all our money, our hard-earned money that they're just throwing at First Energy and First Energy is throwing at this guy. And um, yeah, it, it, they met with DeWine and Husted the same night that they um, that Randazzo met with them. It's kind of incredible. Yeah, what's also incredible is that Randazzo has not been indicted. When you have somebody admitting we bribed him and they've already yeah. taken the penalty and the evidence is what we have seen, what is the U.S. attorney thinking? It's today in Ohio. Finally, the Summit County judge who bounced the lawyers in a shareholder lawsuit involving First Energy because they were rushing for a settlement without doing their due diligence, 
That judge is now under attack by First Energy executives. Lisa, First Energy <laughs> has not stopped and admitted all sins. They're still trying to take control. What are the, they doing to uh, harm the judge? Yeah, the uh, energy First Energy attorneys and representing the executives for First Energy filed a motion over the weekend accusing federal judge John Adams of failing to include both sides when communicating with someone involved in the lawsuit. They say that Adams, who recently kicked those lawyers off and hired a couple of other firms to represent the, the uh, shareholders, um, said that his contacting the law firms to replace the original shareholder attorneys is ex parte or one-sided communication. He said that Adams also failed to fully disclose shareholder letter that was discussed at a March meeting. But Judge Adams says, well, that's been in the case docket and has been for a few months now. So Adams, not surprisingly, rejected this motion. He says it's a tactic to cut short litigation without former First Energy officials being subject to depositions and more investigation. And he said, quote, these are belated concerns that are another attempt to delay discovery in the case. Um, the, the lawyers who filed the motion said they did so reluctantly. They're seeking full disclosure for fairness and transparency. This, look, let's look at this. Word. It's a sleazy move by First Energy. They keep trying to tell us we swept out the bad guys. We, you know, we've atoned for our sins. We've paid our penalty and we've admitted our guilt. But they're still playing these kinds of games. The public deserves a full accounting of what happened. The shareholders in the suit deserve to know everything that happened so that they can be compensated. And yet they're doing everything they can to undermine it. Now going in a personal attack on the judge when he stopped their 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 quick hit settlement. Interesting that uh, that's their tactic. I, I'm sure they will take this to an appellate court. It'll be interesting to see whether Adams survives it. We have saluted Adams for standing up for righteousness in the past. I hope he remains on the case. It's today in Ohio. So it looks like we had a serious need for a suicide hotline. Layla, what do the statistics tell us from the first month of the national hotline being in operation, particularly locally? So on account of the new national 988 suicide and crisis lifeline that's been up and running for the past month, the number of national hotline calls routed to the Cuyahoga County Mental Health Services call center has risen from 18 calls per day to 38. And these are, are calls that come from Cuyahoga County residents and are handled by frontline service. These They're licensed counselors and social workers who connect the callers with local mental health services and counseling or or sometimes just provide a compassionate ear. And they're attributing the uptick in numbers to the fact that 988 is just a much easier phone number to remember than the old 1-800 hotline. So it comes to mind more quickly for people who are in a state of mental crisis. And they're really optimistic that the new 988 hotline will help direct mental health calls away from 911 emergency services. We know that trained counselors are better equipped than police to deal with people experiencing a behavioral health crisis. But interestingly, reporter Julie Washington tells us that there's actually been quite a bit of controversy surrounding the 988 hotline, too. 
Some mental health providers have, have been sounding alarms on social media and telling people not to call the hotline during times of crisis be, over concerns that doing so might trigger an immediate police response that could end in the caller's arrest or hospitalization against their will. And Frontline and, and, and other providers have been really working to quell those anxieties and dispel those myths by reassuring folks that only if a person is in imminent danger of harming themselves or another person would a hotline call trigger a police response like that? And most of the time, they say they're dealing with callers who have daily thoughts of suicide running in the background. It's a chronic problem rather than necessarily an imminent threat. And they're seeking support and services. And that's what they get when they call 988. So um, yeah, you're right. It's meeting a need. I wonder whether the increase was because of the publicity about the hotline that that once you put information out into the public that this help is available that people leap on it but over time that the numbers will balance out the the danger is is if they do have somebody in imminent danger and the police do go and they shoot them or something yeah. it, it will really cast a pall on this hotline and so i hope they don't have that kind of crisis response that's true, except I think, you know, no when when you have a situation like that, no one really knows where you don't trace it back to the 988 response versus 911 or no one knows who how that that police call was dispatched necessarily. It's just um we just know how it ended. So yeah. um yeah. Okay. Well, it's great it's great that it's there because people are using it. It's today in Ohio. Can you really call a space that is just 15 feet wide by 130 feet long a park? I mean, that's not even three times the size of my driveway. What's the story behind the new Lighthouse Park on West 9th Street in Cleveland's Warehouse District? And Laura, I'm betting you love this, even though it's as small as can be. <laughs> I do love this, even though there's not actually a lighthouse in Lighthouse Park. Like, let's be clear about that. So maybe call it a pocket park. I mean, it's it's a very small one, but it sounds super cool. It was the site of Cleveland's first lighthouse before they put the one out into the lake slash river. And it's lighting up this grungy warehouse district corner. It's designed by a Chicago firm. It costs about $500,000 and incorporates a restored section of the original sandstone retaining, retaining wall for the lighthouse that was put up. I think it came down in like 1830. That's when they put up the others. But it was... Um, when that new lighthouse was built, this became, um, it's just on West 9th Street, south of Main Avenue. And it was just kind of a nondescript corner. So they added raised wood seating platforms, a small performance stage with electric power so you can have a band, and these red steel columns that support a beam. And there's going to be two grown-up swings suspended. And I mean, who doesn't love a swing, really? Yeah. I, Chris it's, Quinn, it, do you not love a swing? <laughs> It's interesting that one person really decided to do this, that they saw this space, it was just a bed, and they said, no, this should be a useful public space, and they threw themselves into it to, to make it this. That, that They think that a city is more delightful where you have pop-up things like this around. Yeah, that's the idea that, you know, we have the downtown mall, we have public square, but you have to, if you don't live right on them and nobody lives right on the mall, right? You've got to walk to them. And these kind of neighborhood little gathering spaces are really what makes it 
attractive to live downtown. It gives, you know, gives you somewhere to go uh, with your neighbors and it, it lights up this spot that, you know, is kind of nondescript. It goes in between, it's close to the, the flats and it's near the main Avenue bridge. So it was dark and they've really tried to improve that section. Uh, if you go up there, there's like, a, um, arrows, you know, one says Lake, the other one says city. It's very cool. And, you know, it's just this proliferance of public art. I mean, this park looks like public art. It's not grass with a bench. Does does Steve let write anything that's not automatically interesting? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if Steve Litt's name on, is on it, I'm there. Every story he writes brings a wealth of background. He is a treasure. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk about another park. Why are Ashtabula County officials so worried about what might happen if they turn over the popular lodge at Geneva on the Lake to state ownership as it is planned? Lisa, this is in a state park, but Ashtabula County built it. Right. Ashtabula County built the 109-room Geneva-on-the-Lake Lodge back in 2004. They built and paid for it, and they funded it back when the state could not afford to do it, so they stepped in and did it themselves. They have a long-term contract with Delaware North, which is a Buffalo, New York hospitality company, to manage the lodge, but Ashtabula officials want that contract to continue. However, Ohio law requires competitive bids for lodge operations at its eight other state parks like Punderson and Hocking Hills. All of those lodges and state parks are run by a South Dakota company called Regency Hotel Management. So uh, Jim Timonier, who's the city manager of Astabula, says he's worried that the state won't manage the property well. He says we deserve a top resort, and they're worried that when bureaucrats get involved, it won't stay that way. The Geneva-on-the-Lake Lodge is considered one of the nicest. It's about $300 plus a night, and it's got commanding views of Lake Erie. But the project is $13 million dollars in debt. So they're, you know, they're talking about transferring the property over to the state now, and they should come up with a, a, a decision in mid-December because they have a deadline for that transfer. And this has gone through several delays. So, I mean, Ashtabula, I think, has been fighting to keep their management company in place. So it'll be interesting to see. But the Ohio Department of Natural Resources says it's moving forward with the transfer. And actually, the idea for this transfer to the state was from Ohio Senator Sandra O'Brien, a Republican from Ashtabula County. And she actually opposed the project back when she was Ashtabula City manager. So she's had a change of heart. Yeah. What's what's sad about that, though, is Ashtabula built this because they had a vision of tourism dollars coming in. And I, I it's a huge percentage of their their tourism bed tax now. They they built a first class facility that people love. They have a great management company that gets good ratings. And this person that opposed it from the start is now got this thing going to take it away. And I guess Ashtabula would like to get out from under $13 million in debt. But there is a thinking that that some of the state parks are not managed that well. And if you bring that kind of management style to this first class lodge, it could go downhill in a hurry and hurt their their tourism dollars. Well, I think it'd be interesting to delve in about these other parks. Are they, you know, are these lodges managed poorly? I, I really don't know. I mean, my brother goes to Punderson every year and he has no complaints. 
Okay, well, maybe they that maybe they can pull it off, and the taxpayers of Ashtabula County will be free of thirteen million in debt. Imagine a county trying to reduce the debt they put on their taxpayers. <laughs> right, something Cuyahoga County can't see at all. Interesting story. You're listening to today in Ohio. The idea of the starving artist is ingrained in our culture, but the pandemic really did hit some local artists hard, and now the pandemic relief funds are here to help. Layla, how much money is available for artists to apply for to cover what they lost? And somehow, I just don't think we'll be looking deeply at this through Stimulus Watch. <laughs> well, there's quite a bit of money, actually. The Nonprofit Assembly for the Arts is, is accepting applications from artists and for-profit creative businesses seeking grants under a, a $1.65 million program, courtesy of American Rescue Plan Act dollars from Cuyahoga County Council and County Executive Armin Budish. They plan on awarding grants of up to $2,500 per artist and up to $45,000 for businesses, depending on annual revenue. So professional artists 18 and older who live in Cuyahoga County and have lost income because of the pandemic can apply, and um, you know, along with for-profit creative arts businesses based in the county. And the Assembly has their application guidelines posted on their website. Yeah, it's this is something that we have received a lot of requests from. I was talking to Laura about it yesterday. There's somebody that almost every week sends an email to us saying, can you please make sure that in all the talk of the stimulus dollars, there's a carve out for artists because few industries were hit harder than artists. So it's good to see a substantial chunk of money, a lot dedicated to individual artists being made available. And then you know, this is going to be like the Works Progress Administration, right? We might see all sorts of cool art that results from this. Yeah, yeah. Even if it comes from slush funds. I was going to say, is this part of the slush fund? <laughs> it's from County Council and Armin Budish, so who put this on their list? Slush it's funds. Not, but it's not the individual slush funds. It's the overall slush funds, which isn't really a slush fund. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This is what happens when a state law lets people openly carry firearms without a permit. What is a community activist claiming in his lawsuit against police for what he says was a wrongful arrest? Laura, it's not a surprise that police are going to arrest some people who are openly carrying while not arresting other people. Yeah, and this is even before, you know, the concealed carry was allowed without a permit. But this is Antoine Tolbert. He is... Uh, suing in a federal lawsuit the city is saying that the police knew he wasn't breaking any laws by openly carrying his guns yet still ordered his arrest and a grand jury later rejected all charges in the case and he is suing for civil rights and wrongful arrest he's the president of new era cleveland which is a nonprofit that focuses on providing resources to communities and conducting safety patrols with trained armed citizens. And he went out and walked around after there'd been a spate of violence, a 12-gauge shotgun and a handgun. The officers who approached him acknowledged the state's law, said they couldn't do anything. But then a, a Sergeant Lance Henderson arrived and said, you can't walk down the street. You got to arrest him anyway. Right. Which, why? I mean, the, the question is know. why. I mean, it's the law makes it legal. They, we, a lot of people didn't want that law to pass. A lot of people think it's crazy and dangerous, but it's the law. So how do the police choose which person carrying a firearm gets arrested and which ones do not? Gee, do you think... It's a very, very good question. Yeah. Do you think skin color has something to do with it? <laughs> right. And the location, right? Exactly. Where where it's, he was it's 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 a ridiculous situation and 
if it continues, you're going to end up with civil rights cases. You can't treat people differently. This is people are now allowed to walk down the street with a firearm, concealed or not, and police can't arrest you for that. If you threaten somebody with it, they can, but that's not what they were saying here. No, it boggles my all. mind that the sergeant was the one who didn't understand that, but the rank and file officers did. It seems like he did. did understand it, but he didn't care. I mean, that's just my reading of Adam Faris's story. And he spent 36 hours in jails before he was released before without formal charges. So it's like he just wanted to put him behind bars and he didn't really care if he had a reason. They surrounded him and pointed their guns at him. It's uh, it's amazing that this happened. And it again, the this is what the legislature has set up. And I expect we'll see it's equal. I can't imagine how he does not get a settlement out of this. They completely violated his rights. He was doing nothing wrong and they arrested him anyway. And apparently knowing that they did. Interesting story. Check it out by Adam Faris on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. And we're done for a Tuesday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. And thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast.